From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam. I'm Mia. And I'm Michael. that I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to share with you the first podcast of the new primary election series. Throughout the coming weeks and months, we will be sitting down with faculty and other campaign and election experts to discuss the 2020 caucus and primary elections. We will talk to Professors Burden, Cannon, Kramer, Owens, Powell, and many others over the course of the Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday elections. Today, we are excited to have Professor Barry Burden, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Elections Research Center here at UW-Madison, to help us introduce the podcast series and to address some basic questions about the primary election process and what to expect over the course of the next two months. Professor Burden, thanks for being on the podcast. Glad to be here. Maybe we can start with a broad conversation of just kind of getting into the weeds of what the primary elections are and what to expect. Could you maybe start by providing us with an overview of where we are in terms of candidates and maybe what to expect over the flow of the elections for the next two months? It's a marathon. Actually, maybe that's a disservice to marathons. It's longer (laughs) than a marathon. (laughs) It's a multi-year process. We are just about at the point where some voters are actually going to be participating Mm -hmm. by voting in the Iowa caucuses uh, in about a month and then New Hampshire primary shortly thereafter. But the candidates have been out in the field for a year or more in some cases, uh, raising money, building an organization, meeting with groups, trying to get media attention, mm-hmm. all the things you have to do to run a serious campaign. So it's, it's an extremely long process. And there's enough going on even in this pre-voting period that a number of candidates have already dropped out right? because they didn't make the debate stage, because they didn't raise enough money, because they just weren't getting traction in some form or another. But now we're about to end and enter the, the real voting, and it always begins with Iowa and New Hampshire. Both of those states have laws that guarantee they are at the front of the pack, and they will move around the dates of their events to make sure that no other states are in front of them. Mm-hmm. And there's a special relationship between the two states that New Hampshire allows Iowa to go first because it's a caucus. Right. And New Hampshire goes first as the first primary. Then there are two other states that come in rapid succession after that. That's Nevada and South Carolina. So those four get special treatment by both parties. Mm-hmm. They're in what's called a carve-out period, where they each get to have their own day devoted to them, and it all happens before the other states get going. The other states aren't really allowed to jump in until this year. It'll be March 3rd. And a bunch of them have decided to do that. That day is being called Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. There's usually some version of it every election cycle. Uh, this cycle, it's about 40% of the delegates will be decided in that one day. Okay. Some big states like California voting that day. So that's going to be an imp- important turning point, uh, but probably not the end of the process. Uh, it will continue to unwind as candidates run from state to state, running in primaries and caucuses, potentially right up through the 1st of June. And by that point, we ought to know what the delegate allocations are and and presumably who the nominee would be at the convention over the summer. So 
a lot of things to look at, a lot of things to unpack. We can start by looking at the upcoming elections in Iowa and New Hampshire, two different things, caucus and primary. Maybe we can get some definitions out of the way, maybe under our belt. Iowa is a caucus. That's on February 3rd. The primary is happening in New Hampshire on February 11th. Can you just maybe help me understand or some of our listeners some of the differences between a caucus and a primary election and maybe some of the importance of either or? Yeah, it used to be many states had caucuses, and and now it's dwindled to really a small number with Iowa being the most prominent. Caucuses are essentially precinct level or neighborhood meetings that happen on one night, in this case in late January or early February, Mm -hmm. where neighbors who are aligned with the party come together in gymnasiums and church basements and rec halls and sometimes private homes and express their preferences for the candidates. There's a little bit of debate that goes back and forth. And uh, in Iowa, there's something called a realignment process, Mm -hmm. where after people state their initial views, they're allowed to change and realign with a different candidate. And then the votes are counted. And all of those votes are added up and become the statewide caucus votes that you'll hear about on caucus night. Uh, But it's actually the first stage of, a, I think, a four-stage caucus process in Iowa that scopes up to county caucuses and then district caucuses and then a statewide party convention. So it's very different from a primary election, which is what most states, including Wisconsin, uses and New Hampshire uses. That's like a regular election that most of us would recognize. Mm -hmm. There's a ballot. The state produces it. Voters go to polling places and cast a ballot to mark their preference for the candidate. So that's the New Hampshire process. Um, But those states have always, at least for a long time, been first. And so they have very high levels of interest. And voters there are accustomed to seeing the candidates on their streets and, mm-hmm. and getting personal contact with them. But one key thing to remember is that the, the primary, because it's open to anyone who's eligible and is just a voting process, has very high levels of participation. Probably over half of New Hampshire voters oh, will wow. participate in the primary. Okay. So it looks like general election turnout in many states. Iowa, because it's a caucus and demands more of people to go to these meetings and mm-hmm. spend some time, has much lower levels of participation, maybe 10 or 15% of people who lean Democratic in Iowa will be involved in the caucuses this time. So it tends to be a more dedicated, somewhat older, more affluent group that has the resources and interest to do this sort of thing. You mentioned briefly that there's a law that actually puts Iowa first. Why Iowa? We think about Iowa, it gets so much attention in the election series, but looking at the state, it's not super representative of the rest of the country. So why is Iowa so important? Well, it's important because it's first, and it's first mostly because of history and inertia. Okay. Back in the 1960s and 70s, when states began adopting primaries and other ways to nominate candidates, Iowa wanted to stick with its caucus, but realized that it needed to move the date in order to get all of those different stages of the caucus process done by the time of the summer convention. So as they look, as officials in Iowa looked at the calendar, they just began backing up, and it turned out it needed to be in January or February, maybe March, Mm -hmm. that the first caucus would happen, and that was well before other states. And then by about 1976, candidates began to realize if they went to Iowa and made a splash, winning in a kind of a surprising fashion, they could turn that into momentum that would parlay into additional victories. Jimmy Carter was the person who really pioneered that back in 1976. So it's it's just sort of an accident of history and administrative details that made that happen. Sure. But then candidates began to take advantage, and now Iowa's exceptionally proud of having its place. Uh, but there, as you say, there is criticism within, especially the Democrats, about the representativeness of Iowa being a small population state, rural state, largely white state. It doesn't represent the base of the Democratic Party, for mm-hmm. sure. 
and probably does skew the kinds of things even that candidates talk about or who does well. So every, every cycle, the Democrats in particular take a hard look at whether Iowa and New Hampshire should be first, and they always end up leaving it. Uh, they did add South Carolina and Nevada mm-hmm. as two of the first four a few years back to try to diversify things with different parts of the country and different demographics. Um, but at the moment, at least, Iowa and New Hampshire are keeping their place. I know it always gets contrasted, Iowa with South Carolina, just looking at that demographic base. How have some of the Democratic candidates been approaching Iowa and South Carolina differently? I've seen a lot about Biden, sometimes hedging some of his hope in South Carolina that he'll perform better there. And we kind of see maybe some of those more ideological characters that you're talking about emerge in Iowa. Where are we right now in the Democratic primary with who's coming to the top in these different elections? Yeah, it's a really nice comparison because it shows you how much randomness there is in the process. If South Carolina was first and Iowa was second mm-hmm. or third, we might end up with a different nominee. Yeah. <laughs> so in Iowa, someone like Pete Buttigieg is doing quite well. He's very organized there. He spent a lot of time in the state, raising a lot of money. He's got some endorsements there. So it's, it's working for him. Uh, he's having no traction in South Carolina. The South Carolina electorate is uh, much more African-American. That's a, black voters there are a very large component of the Democratic primary. Just his message is not resonating with those Southern Democratic primary voters for whatever reason, yeah. but Biden is, and Biden can wish that South Carolina were first, and that would let him seal a win and then move on to other states. But right now, he needs to hold on and at least not be embarrassed in Iowa, and New Hampshire, to get to that what's called a firewall in South Carolina, and then maybe on the Nevada where he's also doing well. What do you mean by firewall? So candidates have different strategies. Uh, Someone like Buttigieg doesn't really have national name recognition. He doesn't have a national campaign. He doesn't have organization in other states. He's put all of his effort into Iowa and New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. and he's raised a lot of money to build good organizations there. He's hoping to do well in those states, and hopefully that will create more buzz that will let him then compete in the Super Tuesday and other states down the road. Biden is sort of the opposite of that. He's a national figure. He was vice president of the United States, very well known. He's got organization in many states and, um, you know, doesn't have to win Iowa and New Hampshire, though it would be nice. And 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 losing them would give him trouble. But South Carolina is insurance for him. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's sort of a firewall in that it's a protection. He's very likely to win there. No other candidate has gotten near him in the polls in South Carolina and probably in Nevada as well. He's been ahead in all the polls that I've seen. So of the first four states, Biden has in his back pocket essentially two of the four and and just needs to work his way through these first couple, and he's still going to be competitive. If someone like Buttigieg or Warren or even Sanders can't win Iowa and New Hampshire and then lose South Carolina and Nevada badly to Biden, going 0 for 4 and trying to resuscitate your campaign right. on Super Tuesday is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Biden in some of these debates has had not so great moments, stumbled a little bit. You see things, I know if you're on Twitter, you see stuff pop up a lot about ways he's misspoke or borderline offensive things he sometimes says. Why do you think if he can stumble like this, he continues to remain so viable as the front runner? Is it about electability? I think a lot of it is about electability, but also a lot of it is trust among Democratic voters who know him and have known him for many years. This is one of the things the Twitterverse doesn't like, that he's Mm -hmm. been in Washington for four decades. But it's actually allowed him to build up a lot of credibility with Democratic voters, especially African-American voters who are fond of the eight years he spent with Obama in Washington. He has high levels of name recognition, higher than any of the other candidates. 
So he automatically comes in with that kind of bonus. And he's actually been on a national ticket that won two presidential elections. Right. So it's not crazy at all to think he has a high level of electability. And I think there's also a sense that he could talk to and be credible with some of the voters that Hillary Clinton had a difficult time with in 2016, particularly rural white voters, less educated voters, Mm -hmm. uh, many of whom flipped to Trump in 2016, flipped to the Republicans for the first time. Democrats are trying to pull them back in and... um, and I think by, it's, there's a widespread belief that Biden has sort of a touch with those voters. Uh, he talks about it a lot anyway. Um, so I think that's a lot of it. It's, it's just sort of famili- familiarity and trust uh, that allow him to have a pass, maybe that less established candidates wouldn't have. He's been making gaffes on the campaign trail for decades. It's not new. <laughs> it's not age-related exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran for president back in 1988, and wow. was accused of plagiarizing a speech by a British labor leader, which he admitted to. <laughs> and that I didn't know that. Yeah, that helped drive him out of the race. Uh, and then he ran for president in 2008, right. lost to Barack Obama. He got on the ticket, and here he is. Yeah. So people have long lives in politics, and sometimes it just requires coming back and coming back and coming back. And, um, you know, someone like John McCain did that. He ran several times, and eventually it worked. Mm-hmm. And this, this might be the one that works for Biden. So you talked about Biden's long life in politics. Bernie Sanders, another candidate who's had a long life in politics, but coming at it from quite a different angle than Joe Biden has. What do you think's behind that? Why does Bernie Sanders continue to remain so popular? You know, he's popular with a particular part of the Democratic base, or actually a particular part of the electorate that is sort of partly inside the Democratic base and partly outside of it. Okay. Uh, he has a kind of genuineness, I think, that attracts lots of voters. He's, he's rough on the edges. Mm-hmm. Uh, He has a kind of loud, almost shouting style. He's a little rumpled. Uh, He's older. (laughs) He speaks his mind. And that's appealing. That authenticity is appealing to lots of, especially younger, more progressive voters. The fact that he wasn't really a Democrat and didn't operate inside the party for many years is a bonus for a lot of voters. They, They like that, that he's not an establishment person. And he's calling for big changes, doing away with all private insurance and creating a federal single payer healthcare system, providing free college tuition at both community colleges and traditional four-year schools, liberalizing drug laws, uh, changing the criminal justice system. These are, <laughs> yeah. these are, these are big changes. And um, to his credit, he's brought the Democratic Party in his direction a, a, mm-hmm. a tremendous way in, in just one election cycle. So, um, you know, even if he loses, I think his imprint on the party will be there. Um, but there's obviously a message there that other Democrats weren't offering that has attracted a lot of people into the party. And he's actually counting on that, especially in Iowa, to bring out new people to caucus who are not the regular participants. And his support has been rock steady in the polls. He's not been on top. He's been behind Biden and sometimes others, Mm -hmm. but he's been sitting at 20% or something in most of the national and state polls. That might be enough if some other things come together. We'll have to see. If we look a little closer at Elizabeth Warren's campaign, we saw in polls she was performing really well. She was kind of a star candidate, moved center stage on the debates, but has recently been falling back down in the polls. Do you know what's going on there? I don't know entirely, but I I think your description's right. She really built her own success over the course of months, just putting in the time and building a brand and doing a lot of face-to-face events, raising a lot of money, and then seemed to falter over Mm -hmm. the last few weeks. Some of it, I think, is not her failing as much as it is the success of other candidates that have taken back some of their support. 
Uh, Joe Biden, we talked about before, was struggling through, I think, a lot of the fall. His debate performances were not great. He was actually lagging in fundraising, even though he's the former vice president of the United mm. States. How can you not outraise the mayor of South Bend, Indiana? But right. he was having trouble doing it. Uh, but he has come back into his own. He had a good debate performance. His fundraising's come up, and he's gotten some some helpful endorsements. So I think that has just pulled back some people who were thinking about Warren as an alternative. They've doubled back to Biden. Uh, Sanders also was off the campaign trail for a little bit when he had a heart attack or heart event of some mm-hmm. kind. Uh, but he has roared back in. He's done very well in the debates. He's gotten some endorsements, including from AOC and others. He's raising an insane amount of money <laughs> online. So I think he has also you know, pulled back a little support that may have drifted away from him. So I don't know that Warren has failed exactly. I, th- I think it's just a, a competitive field. And when the other candidates pick up, their support has to come from somewhere. Sure. Uh, she's, she's still at the top of the list for a lot of people and is you know, second for a lot of others. So she's in the mix with these top four or five who are competing everywhere. As the field continues to winnow down, we see people who look more like each other in terms of gender and race. What kind of role do you think gender and race play into this primary process? Well, race is quickly becoming a (laughs) non-issue because the candidates of color have either dropped out or are not at the top of the pack. Mm -hmm. I think gender works pretty differently. So Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar are still the two top-tier female candidates in the race. On the one hand, there are lots of Democrats who are still upset that Hillary Clinton didn't win the election, Mm -hmm. even though she won the popular vote and was a very strong candidate. And they they'd like to very quickly turn to another female nominee and defeat Donald Trump, especially a candidate like Donald Trump, who has offended so many women. Right. To be able to defeat him <laughs> with a female candidate, I think, is really appealing and would change the atmosphere in the country. So that, that that's, I think, drawing in lots of Democratic voters. Mm. But there are also other Democrats who are worried that a female candidate would also lose to Donald Trump the way Hillary Clinton did. There has never been a female president. And so voters have to imagine a little bit what that would be like. Instead of a first lady, would there be a first gentleman or something else? The first lad. Yeah, we don't know. And, um, you know, would her governing style be different from all the men who have served before her? And I think that just a little bit of trepidation about that probably scares off voters a little bit. But on the Democratic side, at least the research I've done suggests Democratic voters give a little bit of a bonus Hmm. to female candidates. On the Republican side, it tends to be the opposite. So the, the winnowing of the candidates of color and some of the female candidates like Gillibrand and Harris is despite the fact that Democrats are really interested in having a more diverse set of office holders. Uh, but those candidates, for whatever reasons, just have not been able to hang around. So while all this is going on, what has Trump been doing? An incumbent president traditionally has sort of stayed out of that primary process. But what's, what's Trump and the Republican Party been up to during all this? Well, a Trump, because of his personal style, can't stay out of it. Uh, he likes to be part of the conversation. And right now, there's a lot of attention being focused on the Democratic activity. And he doesn't want to be left out of that. Uh, he's beginning to have more rallies and more campaign events. Uh, he's doing one this week in a swing state. He's doing one next week in Wisconsin that will be up against the Democratic debate in Des Moines. Right. So I think that's a way to compete for attention with the Democrats there. He's running lots of advertisements on digital media at least at this point, and raising lots of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think over $100 million at this point in cooperation with the RNC. So his campaign is in <laughs> in high gear, and he's building out staff, and he's got organization. He's ahead of the Democrats in some ways because he doesn't have to worry about a serious primary challenger, mm-hmm. which means that his campaign can install staff in places like Wisconsin, where none of the Democratic candidates have much presence just yet. Mm. 
so it, it helps to be the incumbent. The, the fundraising e- is easier, and you can think about the general election rather than the primary. But 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 Trump is also going to pay attention to what the Democrats are doing and try to undercut whoever seems to be doing well there. There are there are technically some candidates running against him, but um, he is free to keep doing president stuff and to mess with the Democrats as he likes. Yeah. Maybe one question as we start to wrap up here is the question of impeachment. What do you think the relevancy of impeachment is in this primary process, but also in the general election? Is this an issue that the general voter cares about? Uh, It is. I I think we don't know how it's going to play out. We're in an unusual situation. We've not had an impeached president on the ballot in a general election. Uh, Assuming that Trump is still running in November 2020, that'll be part of his identity, assuming the Senate doesn't remove him from office. The early polling has indicated that impeachment has probably worked to generate even higher levels of enthusiasm mm. and interest, especially on the Republican side. Surveys that were being done in mid to late 2019 showed that Democrats were really juiced up about the election, mm-hmm. showing higher levels of enthusiasm and interest than they have shown even in general, you know, in the heat of a general election. But Republicans weren't quite at that same plateau. But what impeachment did is brought around the Republicans and got them invested in what was happening. And, and now both parties are at really similar and astronomical high levels. So it, it's worked a little bit the way the Brett Kavanaugh hearings worked two years ago, which were also right before an election season, that it just, it just activated sure. people on both sides. And it becomes a kind of litmus test or defining feature that they're willing to go to battle over. So I, th- I think it's only intensified the, the partisan dispute this election season. Since we're in Wisconsin, I think we should maybe just take a look here at home what our state's going to be doing in the next election, our role that we're going to be playing in this primary process. Where do you see Wisconsin going right now? Uh, Wisconsin has an important role to play, I think an increasing role as we get closer to Election Day. Wisconsin's primary is in April. It's the only primary on its day, April 7th. So the state will get attention from whichever Democrats are left in at that point. Sometimes Wisconsin has been a sort of last stand for a candidate who's trying to hang around. It It was Ted Cruz's last stand back in 2016. I think it was Howard Dean's last stand back in 2004. So it's often kind of a turning point. Uh, About two-thirds of the delegates will have been decided at that point. So the race is not over, but we're beginning to see the end by the time Wisconsin happens. There's some uncertainty about where we'll be in April, but I think Wisconsin will still have a role to play in the primaries. Uh, But then the Democratic National Convention will be hosted here. The first time the state has hosted a national party convention, it'll be in Milwaukee. That's a sign from the Democrats that yeah. they know Wisconsin's important. Republicans know it too, but they were not going to have their convention in the same place. Right. <laughs> uh, there will be a tremendous amount of investment by both parties in our state that it's already happening. Everyone knows Wisconsin is likely to be one of the key battleground states or tipping point states, swing mm-hmm. states, whatever you want to call them. Uh, this is a state that's had a, very, had a very close election in 2016 where Trump won by 20,000 votes with three million cast, wow. uh, a governor's election two years after that, where the Democrat won by less than one percentage point, mm-hmm. and a Supreme Court race just last year that was decided by less than one percentage point. So that's three razor close elections that have gone different ways um, in three years. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we all know that Wisconsin's up for grabs and it's 10 electoral votes are enough to make the difference. Um, so I think we should expect candidates to be visiting the state and to be saturated by ads and for the <laughs> campus to be targeted by campaigns to try to register and mobilize students and recruit volunteers. Um, it, it will be, a, I think, a fun and engaging election season here. Yeah. Interesting or terrible time to live in the state, depending <laughs> on what you think. 
Professor Burden, thank you so much for sitting down. I learned a lot. I'm hoping that people who listen can also get an idea looking forward with a little more of what to expect, a better idea of what's going to be happening, and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon as the election moves forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks.